This is the Imperial Observer Podcast, Fergus Hodgson, your host. Thank you for tuning in. It's my pleasure to host this month's uh, podcast, month's addition to the series. We are a geopolitical intelligence service with a focus on the nexus between Anglo and Latin America. We focus on the rule of law, stability, economic de development, and aligning US and Latin American interests. We have a particularly important guest this morning, Dan Rund of the Center for Security and Strategic and International Studies. He is a senior vice president there, and he's also an, the author of an important book, which has, since its release, grown in importance, or, and since he, he wrote it, that is The American Imperative, Reclaiming Global Leadership Through Soft Power. And I'll get our producer to put up an, a cover image to share with you in a link in the description. So, Dan, thanks for sharing your time. And uh, as I as I said before, this is a, an extremely important topic, one that's particularly relevant to our work. And I'm glad to explore it with you. So, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. I so appreciate being here. It's a great opportunity. Now, many people would find this confusing. The American imperative. One, let's say, piece of the puzzle that I was. I, I listened to an earlier interview with you at the, the premiere release of your book, and I thought to myself, is, are there clear American values to project in the way that they were, let's say, 50 years ago uh, during the height of the Cold War? Or I, my, one of my concerns is that, is there a clear, as you call it, American imperative that we can agree on or understand? Well, thanks. I think it's a great question. I, I do believe that at the end of the day, most Americans would prefer living in a democracy, and most Americans believe that there need to be some basic uh, ways of treating everybody fairly. I think there's a sense of fairness. I think our foreign policy is reflected in the grand scheme of things, a bias towards democracy and a bias towards human rights. We haven't done that perfectly, but I think we've worked in that direction. We also have, you know, I think we've been the sustained a system that has helped allow for global development to happen and for democracy to begin to kind of grow over the last 80 years from the from the end of World War II. It's been undergirded by uh, American and our partners uh, efforts. My belief is that China is seeking to overthrow that system. And if we did a thought experiment and people began to think about well, what would a world led by China look like? If you spent five minutes thinking about it and you were honest, you would not like it. You won't like it in Guatemala. You won't like it in Brazil. You won't like it in Mexico. You won't like it in the United States. You won't like it in Asia. You won't like it in Africa. But we, there's a temptation to say, well, maybe it's, you know, there's, there's, so I think we need to do a better job of, we, there's a consensus in Washington that we have a problem with the Chinese Communist Party and a problem with Vladimir Putin and his murderous regime. What we don't yet have a consensus on is what to do about it. I wrote this book to begin a, a conversation, primarily in the United States, but also with our allies, to think about what we're going to do about us, what we're going to stand up, what we're going to do. And most of this competition with the Chinese Communist Party and Vladimir Putin's murderous regime is going to happen in places like the Western Hemisphere, Africa. Southeast Asia, Central Asia. Most of this competition is not going to be military. It's going to be things like vaccines. I know many of your listeners uh, have an interest in Guatemala. Guatemala recognizes Taiwan 
El Salvador five years ago recognized the mainland. El Salvador got crappy mainland Chinese vaccines. Guatemala was told by its friends in the West, hey, take a number and we'll get to you in about nine or 12 months. And there were a series of vaccine campaigns on the border of Guatemala with El Salvador, where El Salvador and the mainland Chinese government were doing vaccine campaigns, basically signaling to the Guatemalans, don't you want to recognize the mainland? So we need to understand that, you know, the Chinese Communist Party and Vladimir Putin's murderous regime have the ability to fill voids that the West leaves behind, whether it's technology voids, whether it's vaccine voids, whether it's values voids, whether it's infrastructure voids. And I do think in this new age, we're in a new age. We're in the post post Cold War world. That's not a good way to characterize it. Rather, we should, you know, many Washington <laughs> call it great power competition. You could argue it's a second Cold War, though I've eschewed that term because I think that's a loaded and freighted term. So yeah, it is. I, I saw you answer that that question too, or refer to that challenge of what to call this new era because it doesn't fit neatly with the previous dynamic. Okay, I tend to agree with you that even if there is, let's say, turmoil or uh, partisan division domestically, the United States in general has been a, let's say, a healthy backdrop for economic development abroad. Whether this era's foreign policy officials or diplomats understand it or not, I'm not sure. That's a more complicated question. Now, it does seem strange, though, the way that you think this, let's say, battle for preeminence or for influence would, would be played out in the very countries that most people just overlook. Why is that the case? So it's the case because the Chinese Communist Party sees, has their, is looking at economic interests first. They want to, they have, they have interests in natural resources. They also have interest in, say, want to get enough food. They want to get enough fuel. They want to get enough metals. Uh, and they also want to have customers for their for their products. So they have an econo economy first partnership. They also got a lot of money right now uh, sitting in their central bank. And they've got a lot of people who are underutilized. So they want to also finance and link financing with the employment of their people overseas. So they have a series of, let me call them economic interests that are driving a lot of their engagement with the world. In the Western hemisphere, they're interested in getting countries that recognize Taiwan to stop recognizing Taiwan. There used to be maybe 10 or 12 countries that recognize Taiwan in the Western hemisphere, say 10 or even 20 years ago. Now there are six that recognize Taiwan. So Honduras just flipped and Nicaragua flipped. El Salvador recently flipped, the DR flipped, Panama flipped, Costa Rica flipped, all in the last 10 years. So, you know, I think that they have that secondary interest, but it's mainly an economic interest. Over time, they are building out a large military. So they would like to have dual use access to dual use ports. They also would like to run the digital rails of the future. The unholy trinity of Huawei, ZTE, and Alipay uh, is an easy solution in many parts of the world. So if we're not careful, if we don't enable an alternative, you have to think through kind of what the what the implications are of Alipay, Huawei, and ZTE 
owning the digital rails in many parts of the Western Hemisphere, it's going to have all sorts of bad out, bad implications. Same with TikTok. Yeah, so in some ways, the soft power you see being coupled with a more kinetic you know, engagement and having incredible strategic importance. And it, when you just named off all those countries, it, it, it really broke my heart a little bit to think of countries like Panama not being on the U.S. side. It seems unthinkable. It's unthinkable. But I just think that, look, uh, if what I've said to presidential candidates and policymakers is if we don't speak to the hopes and aspirations of developing countries and we don't have a forward positive agenda for these countries, they will take their business somewhere else and likely to mainland China. So the world today, it's not your grandparents' Western Hemisphere. It's not your parents' Western Hemisphere. These are countries that are much more developed. They may be often trapped in a middle-income country trap. They got a lot of technology, a lot of connectivity. They've got a lot more capacity and a lot more agency. There have been significant improvements in a number of different development metrics, education and health, and even Look, there's been some democratic backsliding in the region, but overall, if you go back 40 or 50 years ago, it's a it's a wealthier, freer, more better place. The region's a better place, but there's a lot of challenges, of course, and people will speak to will point to that, of course. But look, uh, 20 years ago, I'm guessing maybe zero. No, I know for sure zero countries in the Western Hemisphere had mainland China as their number one or number two trading partner 20 years ago. Today, something like 15 countries in the Western Hemisphere, China is the number one or the number two trading partner. I mean, it changes the whole power dynamic. So I think we need to understand that this is a very different landscape. And much of the debt in many many emerging markets, mainly in Africa, but there's a lot of debt in the Western Hemisphere in places like Venezuela and elsewhere, is owed now to China. It's not owed to Citibank. It's not owed to the IMF. It's owed to China. And so there's that changes also the dynamic as well in terms of how we're going to manage some of the a number of countries that have taken on too much debt in an age of rising interest rates and slowing economic growth. It's going to have an impact on on developing countries. Do you want to touch upon, let's say, the tension between more of a laissez-faire or free market capitalist inclination of the country and then, let's say, the tool, the foreign policy tools? I saw that you were actually a proponent of the Export Import Bank, and I found that that jolted me a little bit because, of course, it seems like a, a tool of cronyism to many of us. Sure. I think it's a reasonable it's a reasonable concern. So I've been a big supporter of the Export Import Bank because there are 70 export credit agencies around the world. Chi- much of China's lending is through export credit agencies. So the world if we had I'd, I'd love a world with no export credit agencies but because we're in a world with 75 export credit agencies and china's the number one export credit agency player are we really going to disadvantage american industry again so if someone's like i'm going to think about buying boeing or buying some you know some product made in china or higher you know higher ge products or some chinese turbine i want them buying the american product so if that means we've got to have the Export-Import Bank, we ought to do it. And I think ultimately that's what convinced the Trump administration to support a renewal, a re- reauthorization of the Export-Import Bank after five years. My argument is we cannot fight something with nothing. So the Chinese have a something. And if we just say we're going to get rid of the Export-Import Bank, that's not an answer. 
So I understand the, 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 the concern. And so I think it's a, so I've gone out of my way to be a champion of the Export Import Bank because of, because of this great power competition with China. And what I've, when I argue, when I make this case to policymakers and members of Congress, like, are you prepared to cede this space to China? No one has said to me yet, that sounds awesome. I'm totally signing up for that. I would love it for mainland China to, to, to lead X or Y in the world. That sounds awesome. So I haven't had people say that to me. I think what's happened is when people are presented with the hard question of, are you prepared to cede X or Y to mainland China? The answer has historically been, up, up until now, I haven't got anybody saying, yes, I'm ready to give that up and let the Chinese can have, you know, we'd love to, for China to be the number one trading partner in every country in the Western Hemisphere. We'd love all the infrastructure in the Western Hemisphere to be Chinese made. And we'd love the digital infrastructure in the Western Hemisphere to be controlled by the, the Chinese Communist Party. So I think as a result, if you if you follow that logic, then we need to have certain kinds of tools to enable alternatives to the Chinese Communist Party. That's my argument. Yeah, un understood. Yeah. I mean, there is that tension there. Fergus, I totally get it. And as a Republican and someone who identifies as conservative, I get it. It sort of kind of rubs the wrong way. Like, what is this? Is it like quasi-industrial policy? Is this some kind of subsidy thing? And the answer is yes. Now let's let's get to the heat of the meat. Obviously, as as we were, you mentioned before, we do focus on Central America, especially Guatemala. And the big fear in Guatemala is that this is a country that seems like the bosom buddy of the United States, so tight. I love Guatemala, and yet there is this tension where the officials there's this angle list, all these allegations that they're all corrupt, and it almost seems like because it is a socially conservative country that it is rubbing U.S. officials the wrong way. There's some kind of conflict there. Do the actual U.S. diplomats need to read your book? What can the Guatemalan side do also to somehow uh, achieve a more positive or healthier relationship? Okay, so I think, so I, first I want to say that Ambassador Quinones really represents Guatemala so ably here in Washington. He's got a very difficult job. He's a very experienced diplomat, and he represents Guatemala so well. That's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say is that I do think that Guatemala is not give, been given a fair shake in Washington. I 100% agree with that. The Guatemalans are right. Their perception is correct. They're, under, they're slighted, not given enough respect, and I think we ought to be a better friend to the Guatemala. Guatemala recognizes Taiwan. Guatemala's been great on migration. Uh, Guatemala has a, you know, also had to take a take one for the team on vaccines when we said, hey, you know, take a number. And they didn't succumb to the temptation of, of recognizing mainland China. Ty Guatemala is a friend to the United States and Guatemala is a friend to Taiwan. So, yes, I think a pro big part of the problem is, and, and I have found it very puzzling that the administration's been a little bit more unusually enthusiastic towards the Honduran government, which I would describe as kind of communist curious. I'm not sure exactly. No, uh, beyond, beyond that, you know, they've actually been promoting, celebrating 50 years of Cuba, or the Cuban revolution. Not, she's not my, you know, so I, I don't understand. And she just, they just flipped from Taiwan to the mainland. I'm not sure what we're getting for being, for, for falling all over ourselves and being so nice to the Hondurans. I don't get it. Uh, so I don't understand it. So that that's the first thing I'd say. And yes, I think the angle list is, I understand the impulse of setting up the angle list, 
but there's a series of challenges with it. Like how do you get off the angle list is one thing. And are you going to evenly apply it across every country? So for example, are you going to, are we going to go after Christina Kirchner in Argentina? The answer seems to be no. <laughs> apply the angle list to yeah. Luma. The answer seems to be no. So unfortunately, I think it's a great idea that's being unevenly applied and has a number of operate. I did an op-ed about the angle list a couple of years ago that you might take a look at. Let's let, we'll add that to the notes. And yes. I, I came up with some kind of I, I kind of politely look at this and kind of politely suggest that there's some challenges with it. I also think that I know there are a lot of people in Washington that were upset that CSIG, many of your listeners know what CSIG is, yes, was set up, which was also a good idea at the time, but again, I think was misapplied in ways where it's like, well, wait a minute, there's probably a lot of, uh, there were a lot of, uh, you know, you can't just go after one set of political actors, you probably need to be a little bit more even-handed to be credible, and that didn't seem to be the case with the CSIG ex exercise. So. I think you can blow, you know, you have, you know, when you're entrusted with some kind of public responsibility like CSIG, you have to be seen as even-handed and, and it clearly where we're not seen as even-handed. So I think that, um, um, yeah, I think that Guatemala is not getting a fair shake. Uh, I'm sorry about this. I think that Guatemala, I know that you have an excellent ambassador. I do think that there are a number of sympathetic people in Washington understand that Guatemala deserves to be treated better. I think the administration at some point, you know, should get, you know, should wake up and understand that, you know, it's it's, it's probably better to be nice to your friends as opposed to be crappy to your friends. And so I think it's been, it's been frankly, um, I, I find it very unfortunate and inappropriate. I think I don't like the policy towards Guatemala, frankly. The, the contrast with Honduras is confusing, really confusing, but we've raced through the half hour now. Just maybe, so the book is The American Imperative, Reclaiming Global Leadership Through Soft Power. And just a few final remarks. Why is, let's say, soft has soft power become overlooked? Or why do you think you, you need to almost resurrect that term? So I'm resurrecting that term because a lot of people think, so people understand that we have a challenge with China and Russia. I mean, the Chinese Communist Party and Russia. What I think most people don't understand is that this is not going to be a military competition. This is going to be a non-military competition. Most of our engagement, most of our competition is going to be in places like Guatemala and Honduras, and most of it is not going to be military. So we need to have a non-military strategy. Now, a lot of kind of non-military power is overlooked, underappreciated, or seen as fluffy. It's not as spectacular it's not as visually appealing it doesn't kind of it doesn't speak to kind of one's kind of like the red meat in in some i'm a republican i like the military <laughs> so i think we yeah, need yeah. military but we need this other stuff we ultimately won the cold war through ideas and through and in the much of the cold war was carried out and fought out in non-military ways Unfortunately, whether it's we call it a second Cold War or great power competition, this competition is going to be played out in a non vastly in the non-military sphere. So we need to understand that. And then we need to think about how what we're going to do about it. And that's why I wrote this book to begin a conversation about that. Writing this book, The American Imperative, 
reclaiming global leadership through soft power. So I really appreciate Chris, the opportunity to be here today. We've been speaking with Dan Rund of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. That's CSIS.org. We'll link to his archive. Thanks so much for your time. We look forward to another, another occasion. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks.